Back in 2005, when the meth addiction epidemic was beginning on the drug scene in America, there was a sheriff in Oregon that noticed when he would look at mug shots, he would notice physical bodily facial changes because of meth addiction and decided to do a ad campaign to warn people, look, this is not just a drug at the moment. This is going to affect your whole life, affect your whole body. And for example, so he put on, you know, on the internet and other things, photos like this one here. You can see just in a year and a half what a meth addiction did to this woman. This is her first arrest. And then a year and a half later, that's what she looked like. This one here was over nine years. That's pretty dramatic. Uh, just in nine years, how much he aged and just looks like his face is degenerating because of his meth addiction. This one was three years from here to there. Uh, the next one is just one year from their first arrest until a year later. You can see what, the, you know, because of scratching themselves and things like that. Uh, and then this one here is another just three years. You can see the progression of her first arrest and then two and a half years later, and then three years from here, so a total of three years, you can see the toll that meth took on their physical bodies. Jesus could see people like this in their soul. That when Jesus looked at somebody's soul, he didn't just look at their outer appearance, he could see inside, and people look like this to Jesus. Remember, in the very first part of the Gospel of John, the Apostle John, who spent three years as Jesus' inside disciple, he was there for most of the things others weren't, and he says this about Jesus. He said that the God who created this entire universe, who has life in himself, is in the source of everything that exists, he became human in the person of Jesus. So John says, in every story you're going to read, every conversation you hear Jesus have, here's behind the scenes what you always need to remember. This is God who became human. It's God talking. It's God seeing. It's God doing everything that Jesus does. And so a question we should ask is, in any story of the Gospel of John, any story in the Gospels at all, how, does, how, does, how do we see God in what Jesus is doing here? How does what Jesus is doing here show us God? And that is particularly true in the story we read in John chapter four. If we remember what John told us, this is God having a conversation. It will change how you see the story because this is a story that if you've been a Christian for a while, you kind of know this story. This kind of goes in one ear and out the other. This is familiar. But I would encourage you, challenge you, to see this story for the first time of, of, of God speaking to somebody whose soul he can see, just like these photos here. Jesus sees into her soul and sees the, her true condition. Let's pick it up in verse 5. John says, Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son. So right away we're told this is Samaria. This is a, a different group between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. If you think about the land of Palestine, the land of Israel, Judea was a region in the middle that over the centuries had become a mixture of ancient Israelites 
and other people the Assyrians brought in at the time they took it over, they brought in. And so it's a mixture of people seven centuries later after the Assyrians did that, all these intermarriages have created a culture that's kind of part Jewish. They believed in the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, and then part paganism from all the places around that were part of the Assyrian and Persian and Greek empires. And so that's what we have here, but there's a hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans. They saw them as the lowest common denominator of, human, of humanity. And so when Jewish people went into Samaria, they were looked at with sustain, and the Jews looked at the Samaritans with a kind of a self-righteous smugness. And so that's the context of this story. And so it says in verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So now that was something 2,000 years before this, back with Jacob in Genesis. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, because he's human, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. It's interesting because that well is still there. We can look at it, and it is it is, as far as wells go deep, and it it's a, goes cut into the rock, and then there's a flowing stream underneath it that still to this day feeds it. And so John says in verse 6, he says, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Now here's, here's something we know now that nobody knew then except Jesus, and that is that Jesus knew he had an appointment with this woman. He had sent his disciples into town to buy food, so it's, it's just him alone. And he's waiting for her to arrive at this well. She, she, she gets up in the morning, has no idea what today holds. She's got this incredibly messy life, and it's so messy that people, even Samaritans, don't like her. So she's going to come to the well at noon when it's the hottest because she knows nobody else will be there, at least she thought. Nobody else will be there because it's the heat of the day. Everybody else is going to come either in the morning or in the evening. So she goes there because she assumes she can be alone, not have to talk to anybody, not have to deal with anybody. And the text doesn't say this, but we can read between the lines because if we look at the language, his disciples were sent into town to buy food. She's coming from the town, outside a distance away to the well, probably she passed this group of Jewish men, Jesus' disciples, and as if they were typical Jewish men of Jesus' day, when they passed her, they didn't give her eye contact. In fact, they kind of probably had a self-righteous, smug look on their face of disapproval, disdain for this Samaritan woman. It had to get under her skin. Because she arrives at the well, she's made her way to the well, she's carrying this heavy clay jar to put water in, and she gets there, and to her surprise, what? There's another Jewish man, and he's sitting against the well, and he's positioned himself to be an unavoidable obstacle between her and the water, and she has to deal with him. And to her surprise, he asks her, a que- he actually talks to her, and asked her a question, asked her for a drink. But she has an attitude right now. She has a mood, and so she pops back with this. We look at it in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? 
Now, she didn't speak English. She said it in her language, and it was probably something like this. Who are you talking to? Me? Aren't I a disdained Samaritan woman? Why are you even talking to me? Now, to any other man in Jesus' day, she would be. But remember, John told us in the first part, the very first part, this is not just a man. This is God who had become human. And so we're told this is God looking at her. This is God talking to her. And Jesus had taken a, he has a profound interest in this woman. He has arranged the whole thing so they can just be him and her. And so he is in this tired, thirsty, physical shape because he's entering into the weakness that she is on the inside when he asks her for a drink. And she pops back saying, how can you ask me for a drink? And Jesus says this in verse 10. He says, Jesus answered her, if, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, if you had any idea what's happening right now, the God who created the universe wants to give you the gift of God. If you had any idea who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He goes on in verse 14, he says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So she eventually buys in that he has some sort of mysterious water, some sort of mysterious thing about him that she wants. And so she says, yes, please, by all means, give me this water. And then Jesus throws this curveball. Right when she's asking for the very thing he said she would ask if she had any idea who he was, she goes, okay, I'll bite. I'll take the water. And he says, well, it says this in verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Hey, what? I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, this woman had five husbands. How did Jesus know that? But he knew it and he said it. And maybe some of them died. It wouldn't be uncommon, you know, infection, disease, whatever. A husband, but five, some probably died. Others probably divorced her. And now at the point in her life, the man she has is not her husband, whatever that means. Maybe it's somebody else's husband. We're not told. But I would have loved to have seen the look on her face. This stranger this person all of a sudden knows everything that's important in her life, her whole story. And, and it was how he said it. He, he, he said it, it was so painfully true. And yet it was so absent of any condemnation. And we know again, because John told us that he was looking at her with the eyes of her creator. And the way he said it, but he went right to the very thing that only her creator would know was the most repeated cycle of pain, probably shame and confusion with God in her whole life. And he goes right there. I mean, why would he, why would he go right there to the most painful spot right when she's the most open to asking Jesus for living water? 
And I think what Jesus is doing there is a little bit like what the sheriff was doing with those photos. I think what Jesus is doing is wanting her to see how her life is stuck. It's trapped in this wrong narrative. She never would have chosen the narrative her life is in. But Jesus wants to show her a before and after photo. He wants to show her this is how it all started with so much hope, so much promise, so much a plan to be happy and satisfied. This is who you are. This is how it's going. This is who you've become. It's not the life she wanted. Her life is trapped in the wrong narrative. So she acknowledges, she says right away, you are a prophet. But she doesn't want to go there in the conversation. So she, she turns the tables. She does what people do when they're being kind of convicted. The conversation is getting too personal and they feel defensive. She turns the table to put Jesus on the defensive. And so she brings up this century-old conflict between Jews and Samaritans that have to do with whether or not to worship in the temple in Israel, in Jerusalem, I should say, or the temple at Mount Gerizim, which was a mountain right near where they were talking. She brings that whole thing up and Jesus says... Yeah, that's going to be really irrelevant super soon. Because he says this in verse 21. Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Now, what Jesus is talking about here, this word, I'm going to cough. Better now, right? Uh, this word here, time, is translating this Greek word, hour, that we see repeated over and over. We saw it in John chapter 2 when Jesus turned water into wine. We see it repeated over and over. It's this, this one word that always is talking about this coming inevitable plan of God, the, the death of Jesus as the Messiah, the resurrection of Jesus, and the eventual coming again of Jesus, that Jesus is going to create a new humanity of true worshipers, by taking their brokenness, taking their sin, taking everything in them that has made their lives a wrong narrative onto his own body, into death itself by dying on the cross, into the grave itself, and then rising from the dead to become a resurrection for those eventually who will have a resurrection of their body and soul just like him. It's a new creation. It's a new, what John called the children of God in chapter one, the true worshipers. But it's not just going to be a new humanity by resurrection. It's going to be a new world, a new earth by resurrection as well when Jesus comes back to bring heaven back to earth. Jesus is saying everything in your life, it could be a part of an incredible narrative. This hour that's going to come, that even has kind of come now, already but not yet, is going to be something that is going to be everything your heart has wanted. But the conversation ends in verse 25. It says this, that that the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, John says, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I the one speaking to you, am he. It's the only time in the whole Gospel of John that Jesus tells anybody he's the Messiah. And he says it to this woman. A woman that nobody thinks is important, a woman that everybody thought was a nobody, a woman with a past and a present 
that is incredibly messy. Not at all what she probably wants, definitely doesn't want for her life. And he's the, she's the only one he tells he's the Messiah. And right at that point, his disciples come back. And she doesn't want to be there in that group. And so it says in verse 28, it says, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town. So she went back from where they came and said to the people there, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Now, that was obviously an exaggeration, right? He didn't tell her everything she ever did. But it shows you that when Jesus went right to the point of this repeated pain in her life, this pain and shame cycle in her life, that was what's been plaguing her. That was what was so central to her own thinking about her life. And he brought it to light and something turned on inside of her. Something, a light went off that made her realize that Jesus might be what he said he was the Messiah, it, 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 it seems like looking back, she kept guiding the conversation away from what really would have been a great conversation. She kept throwing different distractions and things like that, changing the subject. But it turns out kind of the way life works when we're talking about our creator, when we're talking about the way God works, that in all of her changing the subject, God was actually bringing up a new subject that was ultimately the same thing. God was orchestrating the conversation because Jesus never stopped talking about what the living water was. See, true worship is the Spirit's living water. True worship is the gift of God. True worship, to, to, to see God's presence everywhere and to glory in his glory in every moment is the, living, the Spirit's living water and the gift of God. And Jesus is saying the time has, is coming when that's going to be true, but it has now come to some degree because of his death and resurrection and because of his Holy Spirit, his presence in our lives by his Holy Spirit, we can begin now to experience that. A little bit now, but it's ultimately talking about the one story of the Bible that began in the first book of Genesis and keeps going this same story of talking about what's going to happen when God creates true worshipers on a renewed earth and they're going to be in the presence of God and glory in his glory everywhere. And so at the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7 is John giving a vision. And John says this in Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. This is the new humanity. This is the new humanity that is coming and has now come, that Jesus is creating, that will eventually rise from the dead on a resurrected world. This is a new humanity of true worshipers. The great multitude that no one could count. From every nation tribe, people, and language. And then the vision talks about how they are in the presence of God, the visible presence of God, and God is, they're, they're, they are worshiping God, overcome with joy, overcome with this sense of God's presence, and they're worshiping him. And then John says in verse 16, he says, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on this poetry, right? The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb, Jesus, 
will be their shepherd and he will lead them to, well, here's that phrase again, springs of living water. This is the story of the Bible. The springs of living water, the gift of God, is to be one of the new humanity, the true worshipers that glory in the glory of God. Now maybe like this Samaritan woman, you too have been stuck in a wrong narrative. Maybe you're just too busy on the hamster wheel to have recognized it because there's always the next thing. There's, there's the next show to watch. There's the next TikTok video. There's always something right now to keep you occupied so that you never stop and take a photo of where you are in your soul. But maybe like this Samaritan woman, your life is kind of trapped in the wrong narrative. And it's it's a narrative of trying to find water. It's a narrative of trying to find what it is your soul is thirsting for, and it's always the next thing, but it, it, never, it never works. And maybe, maybe it's taken a toll on you so that if you could see a picture of your soul, I wonder if your soul would look something like this. I mean, when you were younger, and then it started getting worse, and then you're just tired and thirsty. And this is not the life. This is not the story. This is not the narrative you were hoping for for your life. See, we all, we all have a longing for something else. Do you? We have this, it's almost like we have this, we've been born with a memory of heaven. We've never been there, but we've been born with a memory of heaven that God has implanted on our heart, in our spirit, in our soul to find something that we can't seem to find. That life is trying to find this something that we just can't seem to find. I mean, I don't know if that resonates. Do you have longing? You ever have that, that sense of longing when you hear a song? It hits you a certain way, and you don't quite know what it is, but it creates this feeling inside of you that is longing, an emptiness that you sense is there, and a longing for something that you also sense is there. When you see a sunset on a clear day, and you see the sunset, and you see the distance, and you see the clouds, and but as the sun is going away toward the west, you kind of feel like you're missing something, like something is there that you can't quite grasp. When you are under a dark night sky and this, a clear night and you see tons of stars, do you ever have that sense of, does it tap into something? The sense that there's something that's real that you long for. C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Weight of Glory, that, that it's actually a kind of this longing is actually a nostalgic kind of memory that what we really are longing for is the infinite glory, the infinite beauty, the infinite awe of the God that created this universe, the infinite glory and beauty and awe of your creator. And we don't know it. We, 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 we think it's other things. We, we feel it but we've failed to recognize what it's really for. We've failed to recognize what this longing is really all about. But we can't shake it. It, it shows itself in all these different ways that we think is the water, but it, 
never ends up being the water that satisfies our thirst. Here's, what, here's how he says it. I like how he says it in The Weight of Glory. Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy. It's not a trick that our brain is playing on us, he says, but the truest index of our real situation, that nostalgic longing, that sense of being outside, that sense of being cut off from something in the universe that we long for, that being on the wrong side of the door. He says that's not a game that your mind is playing. That is the truest thing about your life circumstances. That is the truest reality of your situation. And to be summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache, that repeated pain and shame because we keep trying to fill the longing, but our longing is for something that these things just point to, but they're not the it. See, you long for something that is real, and there is a real something that you long for. And Jesus says it's to be a true worshiper of God by the Spirit and truth, to be summoned in, to be in the presence of God's infinite beauty, infinite glory, to be in awe of who he infinitely is would never, ever get old. You would never, ever get tired of it. It would always be a new, awesome glory to glory in. And there's a real you that was created by God. There's a real you deep inside that was created for this. And Jesus says, he's it. It's through him. If you just knew, if you just knew the gift of God and who it is that offers you living water, you would ask and he would give it to you. To be a true worshiper in God's infinite glory and beauty and presence. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we hear these words. They're the words of God. God who became human. And the words you say to her, you speak to all of humanity. You speak to all of us. If we had any idea, the gift of God and who it is that offers us a drink, we would, everything would be dropped. We would ask you. And you would give us this living water that begins to some degree now but is a well inside of us that is going to overflow as a spring of water to eternal life. It begins now, but the, the overflowing spring will come later when you bring the spring of water back to earth in your visible, glorious, infinite presence and beauty. But we ask now that you would give it to us, that you would give us your living water, that you would give us the gift of God, enable us by your spirit to become true worshipers in spirit and truth. Amen. Would you stand to receive God's blessing?
May God's spirit enable you, give you the gift of God, the living water to become a well within you, a spring of water within you welling up to eternal life. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Have a great week.